Hello, I'm Anthony Johnston, and you're listening to Writing and Breathing, a show where I chat with fellow authors of all kinds about why, how, and what we write. My guest today is the comics writer Kieran Gillen. Kieran, welcome to the show. I'd love to be here, Anthony. Now, comics writer doesn't quite do you justice. Um, so <laughs> There's no justice for comic writers. <laughs> we both know this. Uh, so for people who aren't familiar with your work, just briefly tell us you know, who you are and what you do. Uh, my name's Kieran Gillen. I, uh, it's, I sort of came from a background of being criticism. Like I used to be mainly video games, but also like pop music and anything which wasn't important is my best way of describing it. I did that for a long time, uh, fell in love with comics and basically segued in through the small press. I did like some, started doing create your own books, uh, with a guy called Jamie McKelvey. Uh, the first one was called Phonogram. These were kind of like weirdo sort of cult hits. Uh, eventually I managed to get work at Marvel or rather Marvel asked me to do work uh, in this kind the of fools. like, yeah, they, they were, they were probably drinking. Uh, and I've sort of sat there for a long time. So I did like a lot of, a load of the Marvel crowds, as you would know, if you're listening to this. Uh, and I was always kind of doing my own stuff on the side. So I basically, for the last couple of years, I've almost entirely been doing creator own work of books like the end of the Wicked of the divine and die and once of future and that kind of thing. So yeah, I've, I've sort of, um, I've worked broadly in the, in that kind of medium. Yeah, well, and your audience is, I mean, would you say evenly split between, you know, people who mostly know you as, yeah, the guy who's written just about every Marvel book under the sun or the people who devoutly follow your creator-owned work like Phonogram and Die and, of course, The Wicked and the Divine? It's really hard to work that out because, like, when I was doing a signing with Jamie, you're always analysing who actually comes to you because it's like... um. We have this as well because it's the complexity is the people who come to you and get stuff signed aren't necessarily your whole audience. They're the people who are into you enough to come and stand in a queue and <laughs> get yeah, you to write right, your name. Yeah. So you're always trying to analyze, okay, what does this actually mean? Uh, especially like when you talk about work for hire, like I think it's a rare creator who get, who gets a fandom for their work for hire, which is not primarily based around the character, you know, and you can have it on a few books. I mean, someone like Grant Morrison would be an exception. I mean, and um, it's like someone like Al Ewing at the moment is obviously he has people who really like his work for higher writing, and obviously Immortal Hulk is is, is this tour de force, and I think that's that's an example of an sort of an exception. So you kind of eventually get these kind of signature works in work for hire, uh, but the majority of people who read your work for hire are reading it because it's work for hire in the universe they care about. You know, as in like yeah. um, that's the so it's quite hard for me to actually analyze what actually is your fan base. And for me, it was always a kind of an attempt to, okay, I'm doing this because I'm A, enjoying it. But there's always an angle. I, if I'm doing a work for hire job, I'm, I'm doing a work for hire job, as in the I is underlined. So it's, I'm, you know, it's something I always liked about, I don't know, say Warren Ellis. You know, Warren, no matter what the work for hire job, was very clearly a Warren Ellis comic, <laughs> you know? So that is introducing people to his ideas and how he chooses to do it, which I think is good for him as an artist. And it's also good for you as, um, as in, if you're into this, you probably want to follow us over. I mean, it's the awful, like, cynical, not cynical, possibly cynical thing at the heart of Wicked is we did a book called Young Avengers at Marvel, which is this uh, youth-oriented pop book. And then the same creative team does a youth-oriented pop book with a bit more swearing over image. And we launch, we announce it like the day after that kind of thing. So it's like, for me, it's always, they kind of tie together a bit, I guess. Yeah, I remember having lunch with you around King's Crossway just mm. before. I think just before you pitched Wickdiv, or maybe you'd pitched it, but you hadn't yet, you know, sort of written and launched it. And it amused me because you were almost ashamed that you were <laughs> be thinking commercially for once in your life. <laughs> and actually, yeah. thinking, we just did Young Avengers. What if we did a book that was a bit like that, but we owned it and it was original and a bit cooler? Um, yeah. Which, you know, <laughs> was a really great idea, it turned out. <laughs> <laughs> it is kind of like the, the, the shamefulness of doing something that's sensible, especially because me. Um, there's this legendary email I sent to uh, Jamie and um, actually CC Matt Fraction for some reason. I'm not sure why. Uh, why not? <laughs> yeah, the mod, it's that kind of it's part of the weird Casanova phonogram rivalry. I think in terms of I used to sort of think of us as like the Beach Boys versus the Beatles. But to be honest, we were, me and Jamie are more like the Who, really. Uh, <laughs> that kind of you know, <laughs> look at us. I like. I, you know, there is a leftover self-aggrandizement element to my thinking. But the, the line in the middle that always sticks to me is, Jamie, for once in our life, let's be sensible. 
because you know you know the, especially phonogram for people who haven't read it it's kind of a book about music and magic and specifically how music can feel like magic uh and it's about real world music it's very much grounded in the scene i was traveling through at the time uh it is basically as me and jamie quite often put it designed for like not really people who went to the comic shops in the mid noughties mm. you know and of course that's an incredibly bad idea <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, terrible. Let's make a comic for people who don't read comics. I've been doing that most of my career as well, and it's uh, yeah, yeah, not always sensible. But I can relate. I can and I can sympathise because that's what I did uh, after Atomic Blonde. Was mm. I was like, okay, well, this is what people know me for now. So, and then I started writing the Bridget Sharp thrillers because mm. you know people now want spies from me, and that's fine. I don't mind doing it, but there is that feeling of like I kind of should do this because it's the sensible and commercial thing to do. I think that's okay as long as you've also got, you know, the passion for the idea, which you clearly had with Wikdiv. I mean, it's become mm. your magnum opus, really. Yeah. I mean, as I say, it's always, there has to be something else. I mean, I'm mentioning Alice again, actually. Um, it's all right. It's not the first time he's come up on this podcast. <laughs> I can imagine. I mean, obviously, us being of a set agenda, I actually found Frightening Curves. I've just been tidying up my bookshelves, and I found Frightening Curves. Wow. Uh, which I re- we look at what to keep or what to throw out. And we kept that. That's an important part of history. Oh, bless you. <laughs> uh, but, you know, that, that generation, obviously, we we're all very influenced by Warren in different ways. But when I was sort of going into thinking about doing something like Wikdiv, I was kind of tying myself in circles in terms of what would be the sensible thing to do. And some levels, like, you know, that remained there. But the, other, the thing he said, what do, you, what do you have to say and how do you want to say it? Kind of, and that's kind of like really useful first principles. And that kind of was, okay, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a book which is about saying goodbye to youth. That's kind of how I grounded Wikdiv for me. Because, you know, it's a book about me turning 40. As in, you know, I started, it came out when I was 38. Um, and the gods are all characters. So the gods are the lead characters of Wikdiv. And they all have two years to live. You know, it's not oh, and you had two years before your 40th, right? I actually yeah, yeah, didn't yeah. know that about your age when you started it. <laughs> yeah, I didn't shout about it. I mean, it's like, occasionally you don't want to make stuff too obvious. <laughs> but like, <laughs> I was I was shameless in the two years of it. Um, so like, you know, as in, okay, this is what I want to talk about. And I want to talk about why on earth I love pop culture. You know, and why did I want to be those people? And who did I hurt along the way? You know, that was kind of the, the that's the reason why it mattered. And this is actually saying, it's like, as long as you care about the idea, um, you know, and you find a way to really emotionally engage with it, it's worth doing. There's no, there's not, there's not all, I'm not the sort of person who believes there's a conflict between popular and with merit. I tend mm. to think like, if I look at the history of the world, most often it's the best, when the best works are also the most popular. Like in terms of when they are defining culture, that's normally implies there's a certain vitality to the form. Yeah. Um, that's like, I mean, like pop culture, you know, pop music in the 60s might be a good example. And like pop, uh, that's when, the, the high watermark in terms of credible pop music also being massive pop music. Uh, and since then, as the genre has increasingly been mined, the interesting stuff moves to the margin. And that doesn't mean that interest, that interesting stuff is less interesting. It just means that the really big, obvious things the medium does, which everyone likes and is also very powerful, have been done. Have already happened, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so, you know, that's... But, you know, and I, I sort of can apply that to all sorts of art forms in different times. So um, that- so that whole, uh, I, I just want to go behind the reasoning for that for a minute, because that is, mm. f- from a craft point of view, that is fascinating thinking about it, that the whole reason you chose These Gods Live for Two Years is because of you, was because of your own personal and psychological circumstances. Because I always wondered why it was two years. You know, it was, it's, it's such an arbitrary... And and why not? I mean, it's fiction, so you can do whatever you want. It could have been two years, it could have been three years, it could have been four, it could have been six months. But that's kind of what I mean, is I always wondered mm. why you'd chosen two years. And because I didn't know that about your exact age when you started it, I had no idea. That's fascinating. I must admit, I'm not sure. Uh, this is a long time ago, and I was in an emotionally heightened state during the creation of Wicked. <laughs> that's what I always describe it as. So now you're going to tell me that you're not sure if you've got the ages correct. <laughs> no, I've got the ages right. <laughs> oh, okay. But I'm not sure if the two years became before or after I, as in, I'll make it two years. Because the, the other reason oh. I'll make it two years was actually mimetically, was actually, what can we do that is actually mythologically sticky? Because one year to live, everyone's done that. Yeah. You know? Uh, so 
five years to and live. And ten years that, to live is not urgent. That's like yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, five yeah. years to live is it isn't really urgent. So two mm. years is a good balance between the two. It's also something people don't often do. So in other words, if we say two years to live, people might say, oh, that, that's wicked. If you said a year to live, that, that could be almost anything. That could be hundreds of works, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And the same way the, um, the sacrum, the 90 years, you know, every 90 years, the gods return. We don't, we, you know, we don't use a century. We could, you know, 90 years are, is a, a weirder number that, you know, we can own in quotation marks. So like that's part of the world building in terms of trying to make something that was ours. And there's a lot of like the thinking around me and Jamie, okay, how can we make, what did feel iconic that was kind of like um the, the showiness of that kind of thinking so you, you you're kind of having your cake and eating it then because it's you, you're you're plugging into things that people understand limited time to live cyclical you know almost a century or whatever events but making them not quite fit what people expect so that as you say so that you can own them and they can be yours and if anybody else now does something that repeats every 90 years, inevitably, people are going to go, well, that, isn't that what you do? Exactly. I mean, that was always kind of making a new... Mef- As me and Jamie are just like really compulsive consumers of culture, you know, and, and that, and in term, it's okay, why did we fall in love with X? What is about bands or... I'm, I'm looking at my Warhammer miniatures on the shelf. I mean, like, before I was doing Die, there was another book I was working on with Stephanie. Uh, and I, that's ended up going in the back file because Die was a better idea. But like, at least part of that idea was me looking at Warhammer 40k and it's like, why the hell do you care about 40k? <laughs> right. <laughs> what know? is it about this that grips you? Yeah. Yeah. And then working out, okay, how can you do something a bit like that, which, which appeals to the same parts of you, whilst being a completely different emotional thing and ours in a way, and, you know, in a way which people wouldn't necessarily connect to 40k. Mm. Um, so like, what did was the process, you know, why do we fall in love with bands? And therefore, how can we make a comic that tickles those uh you know that, you get the same as what would appeal to you <laughs> right i was gonna say that's i had exactly the same thought process with uh atomic blonde uh that was you know back when it was called the coldest city it was exactly the same like what do i really like well i really like john le carre style cold war you know sort of gritty spy fiction okay can i do something like that that isn't john le carre turns out mm. yes i can but it was exactly that same thought process. It's always it's about making something that you want to read yourself. As that's you know that's the shorthand of it that I always refer to is you've you've got to write something that you would want to read because mm. if you're not doing that, well, you better make damn sure that you're well paid for it. It's all like I always find myself thinking. Um, what's it? I don't know. This is one of the things I've said. I occasionally say to writers, and it's I think it comes across quite badly. So listen to it generously. I think my worst <laughs> critique. My, like the thing that most, when I, especially when I read Career Own Work, is I read it and think I do not know why that exists. Right. <laughs> by which I, you know, I mean, by, by which I mean, like, there's a, I, I can't understand why, apart from possibly money, <laughs> why, what, you know, why they would have chosen to write it. In other words, if it's just like too, you know, it's not like if it's something that already a lot of it, if it already exi- a lot of it exists, mm. might be a you know, good way of putting it. Is that the thing, you know, it's got to be something you love, but also the kind of what's you know, why are you trying to, if you're making something and you're making something so similar to something that already exists, why are you doing it? Why, why, what's what's the passion there? Right. Why uh, are you making this rather than just reading the thing that actually is 99% like it anyway? Yeah, 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 that kind of thing. Although sometimes that 1% can be all it takes to to make the difference. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. That's what I mean. I, I, that's why I phrased it, that question. It's very much my failing. Because it's like, so I immediately I go to really trying to analyse what, what really mattered. There. Okay, what was that? What am I missing? <laughs> you know? My enormous response when reading work and I don't get it is to kind of, okay, let's, before I immediately just reject it, let's kind of uh, take apart my own prejudices here, what's going on with me. Uh, and then, you know, before tearing into it, I guess. Yeah. Why am I having this reaction to this thing? Um, yeah. All right. So we've talked about, about kind of, you know, Wikdiv's over now. So that's past work, as it were. What are you writing uh, right now that you can talk about? <laughs> it's weird because like i sort of dialed my work down quite a bit last year as a wikdiv ended my run on star wars ended uh that kind of stuff happened so the only i was end up doing die and once in future and die is an ongoing but it's only really eight issues seven or eight issues a year because the gaps in the runs mm. and once the future is kind of like eight or nine issues a year so in other words, that's by far the lowest amount of work i've ever done <laughs> Right, that that's for for an average, even an average comics writer. That's actually kind of a a low workload, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And I was my original plan was actually just to write the novel, 
uh, use the space. And plus, I still kind of have that urge. Um, I was just going to write the first third of it and see how I feel about it. Because, you know, I've got, I've got lucky enough, the work's been successful, so I've got the financial space to consider doing that. In the end, though, I uh, didn't do that. I ended up taking a couple more work for high gigs on, uh, which are not very, you know, which are limited gigs. Uh, but, you know, work is a tendency to bloom. Uh, and there was something that interesting, and that kind of what attracted me to them was something I haven't done before. That was kind of the real appeal. Mm. Uh, but, and I'll be able to, I'll inevitably talk about it down the line. And finally, Ludocrats, uh, which is uh, a mini series by me, written by me and Jim Rosenall, who's a very old friend of mine. Asterix and Obelix meets the Meta Barons as a sex comedy is my kind of way I would describe it. <laughs> so it's literally. Um, That's a good pitch. <laughs> it's like. It's just so different to everything else I've ever done. It, it's a comedy. It's phenomenally dumb. <laughs> uh, and it's kind of like, it's, you know, it's kind of weirdness for weirdness sakes book. They kind of often get the sense that they're being cooler than you. And people kind of often get rubbed up by that. Mm. And what Ludocrats is trying to do is, this is a book which is basically runs of bonhomie, as in like, hello, my friends, join us. And that kind of personable weirdness is kind of what it does. Right. And it's, got a load of writing in the back like me and it goes as well as the comics we've got like pages of like annotated diagrams and letter fictional letters pages and all manner of nonsense so it's just silly nonsense that actually strikes me as not a million miles away from how i felt reading your run on uh journey into mystery your loki run Ooh, i mean obviously you know not quite the same but it it felt to me like it had that sort of coming in friends and let's have a good old laugh and, and tell a story kind of thing. That's what I like. I mean, like, I don't know. I, I kind of, I tend to come across as pretentious quite often, like, because I speak nonsense a lot and <laughs> often just go, you know, pr- pr- you know, that's, and it always, always bugs me because I'm not, pret- you know, pretentious implies that this is in some way pretense. You know, what I am, I can't say the word because I promise not to swear. <laughs> but I, <laughs> You're theatrically minded. That might be it. That might be a way of putting it. Um, <laughs> but um, in terms, of, but the other side of me isn't—it's absolutely is that. And let's have a nice time together. So there is, I guess, I can sort of see the connection. So in some ways, it isn't that far, but it is a sort of a pure burst of the sillier stuff in Journey to Mystery. I, I think I don't think there really should be too much shame about being a little bit pretentious or yeah, theatrical or whatever you want to call it in our fiction because mm. you know no matter what you're doing even the sort of grittiest uh you know most down-to-earth kitchen sink drama writer we are still writing fiction and it is still intended to engage an audience whether that's mm. you know watching it on a screen or reading it in the pages of a book or a comic or whatever um that is and even if we might have a very serious message behind it and a very serious reason for doing it we are still trying to keep people's attention and engage them. And sometimes that takes a bit of stagecraft, a bit of slate of hand. I, I don't think that's a, a bad thing. There's so much of being, you know, I've got basically a working class background. So like if you're brought up work in a working class environment and you are, as you say, a bit of theatrical bent or mouthy, um, you end up like having to apologize for it a lot. Or rather mm. you, it's the actual make just, you know, self-deprecating as in showing an awareness of the fact you are like this <laughs> right <laughs> you know? well, you see you're, you're seen as having ideas above your station aren't you mm. that's the i mean that that was certainly how i got it because you and i have similar backgrounds mm. in that respect and yeah it was with me the feeling was from other people was always that i was kind of getting above myself and that i shouldn't mm. have such ambitions because i was just a working class kid from birmingham yeah. And this is the reason why I get quite angry with myself in terms of being, you know, the fact I do self-deprecate about the pretension, you know, like I, I shouldn't have to. I'm at the same time, I'm also really angry because I'm very aware that, you know, if I wasn't like, you know, doing, my family are mainly builders. And there's nothing wrong with being a builder. I've worked building sites, but like it is explicitly, if I was not like this, I would be there, <laughs> you know? Uh, and like, so mine, that's the other part. So there's definitely a level of rage there as well. So pff, I just say, what do you want to write? Whatever drives you, and give you. A, there's so much of my stuff about trying to unpack why you are like the way you are. Is change possible? Um, I think that's probably if there is a theme 
that runs through, you know, we've all got these themes that sometimes we're aware of and sometimes we're not. And if there is a theme that runs through your work, I think it is always people asking themselves, hang on, can I be different or am I destined to follow this path no matter how much I try to step off of it? I would agree, I would agree with that entirely. It's like, um, yeah, I mean, if I had to choose one, it would be that. And it's also why are we, what devices keep us as we are Mm. Um, and the societal means of control and how you buy into them and why you buy into them. Um, you know, I think all that stuff ties together. And it's like, it's, if you look at my work for hire, I don't know about, like, I think the people I wrote best were villains. Because they have that question, yeah. Well, well, Loki, I think, I mean, Loki technically is a villain, but obviously... Oh, no, definitely. Yeah. You know, he, he has a lot of grey area and he is a very multifaceted character. And I, I honestly think that's why he was one of your most popular characters you know and that was one of your most popular books for exactly that reason because he was multifaceted and yes ultimately he's a bad guy but you can see that he's throughout the whole thing and not just on your run but i think you did this very very well the character is always going well could i be good could i be a good guy should i be a good guy is it even possible that's kind of like absolutely what what is that's Loki was like a key for me. It was like, it's so interesting, like, because occasionally you get given a character and you kind of unlock something in yourself. Mm. Like, uh, for me, with Loki, it was especially Kid Loki, who was like, Loki was a kid for all my Journey to Mystery run. And he, um, I think my work before Journey to Mystery had a certain coldness. Like, a lot of my characters are very reserved and they're kind of deliberately hiding their emotions. And, like, for me, the emotions were always very important, but the fact they had them really nailed down. All the mm. phonogram casts are really like defensively masks up and it's always when you see a bit of the, the mask cracking i mean for example like eventually i wrote emma frost and emma frost is very much that character and but writing kid loki was a kind of like a character with all that sort of complexity but he's 13 years old immortal but 13 years old therefore suddenly I, it gave me permission to write all those emotions near the surface i could do someone who was very playful and talkative but at the same time like occasionally i, I could write it getting clearly too much for them and not and feeling very natural and the fact that i wrote that and people responded to it and i realized it was uh, working well oh yeah that was like a magical that was a magical portal for me i guess and it's kind mm. of impacted most of the stuff i've done since i think and i still like left to my own devices i gravitate towards cold people <laughs> you know it's like uh, <laughs> uh, like look at about laura look, most of laura's story in wicked is about her closing herself off and not communicating with anyone let alone the reader or anybody and you got like um, Ash as the lead, basically the lead in um, uh, Die, who is confessional almost all the time. But it's like, how much do you believe what she's telling you, and what she's telling you, and why is she telling you it, and how much is she telling all those kind of things? So like, I, I think I'm better at like doing the characters are holding at a distance, whilst also weirdly being confessional. But the awareness of like, I can write stuff near the certain. Not not surface level emotions, but writes people's feelings near the surface, and that allows people to buy in easier. Because you mm. know, feeling so much in fiction, at least for me and when I read, is based around I understand what this person wants and needs. I understand they're not getting it, <laughs> and I understand why that is upsetting. And therefore, you sympathise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, let's. I mean, how's this for a nice meta segue? That whole openness thing is one of the things that I find that I admire and find fascinating about how you handle your public persona, you know, and that's one of those things we've all got one. Some of us try to keep it as close to our real selves as possible. Some of us don't, but we've all got one. <laughs> um, you're laughing in recognition of people we know who are like that, but like I say, I'm not passing judgment at all. It's, but my, what I was going to say was that uh, the way you handle it is you are really open about, not just about, you know, what you're working on. I mean, in your newsletter, you will literally say, oh, yeah, I wrote 10 pages of this script or whatever this week and 20 pages of this comic and I've got this deadline coming up. You're really quite open about that aspect, but you are also very open, again, about your uh, your process and how you, your thought process. You know, you're not a, um, you don't have a problem coming on shows like this and saying the sort of things you just did about how you think through these themes and what your aims are which some authors don't really like doing it's different like i swear so much just comes from the critical background and of course that comes from somebody who wanted to be in a critical background so in some i'm aware that i don't get to be a critic anymore in the same way so i uh, don't get to 
break apart other people's work in a way which is not always friendly to the work. <laughs> you know, I quite often write about people's work, but I rarely, you know, I quite regularly write about other people's work. But what I don't get to do is, oh, no, I really hate this and I think this is wrong. Because <laughs> right, it's, right. you know, it's not worth my time. Uh, so, but I always apply those advice myself, even if it's like stuff. And there's definitely stuff I do then analyze. Oh, I see why that came from. It's not like everything I do is planned in advance. But I'm often, I look at the work and say, oh, yeah, see, I can reverse engineer the sort of what actually happens and why that works and why you are doing that again. Um, and there is a bit like the, the public persona of a writer is really interesting. I mean, what, returning to Warren, like how many people try, did a fake Warren Ellis personality in the, in the mid noughties, you know? <laughs> oh, I'll, I'll put my hand up. I, I went through my own, you know, thankfully mercifully brief, but yeah, period of doing it. Cause yeah, Warren was the coolest guy around at the time. Who wouldn't? I mean, it's like, you know, he was, he, he kind of invented a certain kind of voice, um, I mean, I think my, I did a column which is very clearly ripping off Warren for like future at one point uh, when the first version of Daily Radar was running, um, which was a lot of fun. <laughs> but like, eventually, when it got to the point where I, I sort of decided that, um, oh no, my thing's going to be I want to be as transparent and honest in public as I am able, which isn't always completely honest, but in terms of like, I want to. There's some level of like demystification as well in there. Like I want to, this is what I this is what I'm doing. This is why I'm doing it. This is where I think I am. I will, you know, I'm lying to you enough in the fiction. I'll try not to lie to you here. Right. Um, so that was a lot of the kind of because this has got an interesting contrast to the, the theatricality of all of the my actual delivery. Quite often is that the actual okay, you're going to get a lot of warts here as well. That's the other side of it, which kind of grounds me, or mm. like grounds my public persona. Um, and the other side is actually me just wanting to be helpful. I, I always think about, um, I should mention Warren again, you know, coming alone or like any of those early things Warren did, which were useful to people. And like when I did my podcast for a while, Decompressed, the thing was, okay, you're in a position now where a lot of famous, you know, comic writers will talk to you. Uh, you know, what would you, what would you, what would 23 year old Kieran get trying to get into comics um, want you to do? As in what yeah. would be useful to what him. do you wish people had told you when you were starting out that's then mm. that's exactly where I was coming from that was going to be my next follow-up question was is there an element there of giving back stuff you know giving back this knowledge that yeah you and I and people of our generation we didn't really have it we started to get it from people like Warren bless him um mm. and uh, Stephen Grant was very good about that as well uh, in the early days but really there was not a lot of it around at all and so you know, I publish stuff online. I know you do as well. You have your newsletter. Uh, I do podcasts like this where I'm trying to help people who are in that position starting out like we were to see behind mm-hmm. the curtain a bit and kind of, you know, answer those questions, as you say, that we wanted to ask, but there was nobody there to answer them. Yeah, absolutely. It's like, um, it's amazing to think how much information has come in the last like 20 years. I found myself, like, I was doing an interview of, um, did you read uh, Writers and Comic Book Script Writing? Did you read that? <laughs> Man, that is the book that got me into writing comics. Unlike you, I have been a comics reader since I was a child. I grew up reading them. I always wanted to make them. I always wanted to write them, uh, you know, as well as many other things. But it was one of the things that I always wanted to do. But I fell out of the idea of even trying to get into them until I read Writers on Comic Script Writing and then reading the interviews in there with people whose work I'd enjoyed as a teenager, like Garth and Grant and finding new people or people new to me anyway, like Warren in there as well. That was actually what got me serious again about writing comics. I think that's a very common response to people of our generation. Like I read like, cause it's something like something I'm just through quoting what Warren wrote in those three listeners coming alone was a column that uh, Warren wrote and in the middle of that, he did three episodes, I think, about how do you do, how do you write comics? <laughs> and, you know, and that, and he did that for three weeks. And that was my kind of basic, how do you put a page together? Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, and he noted there weren't many, there's more books circa 2000. Like when he was coming up, there was like one book and it was, uh, it was, it was Eisner's basically. Yeah. Um, uh, and when we were like, there was starting to be slightly more and writers and comic book script writing was absolutely the one which was just useful. I read that so many times and I absorbed it. And it's, it's basically like 10, 11, 12 kind of like interviews with creators when, when interviews with creators done in a series mode are rare. <laughs> and, um, 
it was a wonderful complete compare and contrast like i don't know you went through it and you saw all these different writers and, and it, you found something i disagree with this guy i agree with this guy yeah. <laughs> or um you know which one am i or which one am i most like and triangulating your ability to think about the process you know yeah that was a hell of an influence of the book um, well, and as you say it was a, it was done seriously and that was you know extraordinarily rare at the time which seems absurd in this mm-hmm. day and age but at the time all interviews with comics writers basically stemmed around who would win in a fight, Thor or Hulk. You know, have you ever wanted to write Spider-Man? You know, stuff like that. It was not, there was almost nothing about craft and process and Mm -hmm. methods and what do you do each day when you sit down at your desk and how do you outline a story and how often do you talk to your editor and things like that, which seem incredibly prosaic, but nobody was asking those questions. And so, yeah, as you say, when a book came along that took the craft seriously and ask those questions we yeah we devoured it yes 100 percent that in terms of yeah there's definitely some degree i'm trying to put stuff back and and i said there's part of you know part of paying stuff back what would be useful and the other side is just the critical brain of it like i just like you know I, I clearly like thinking about method and process so me sharing my working with other people somehow justifies <laughs> Well, I mean, and that's the other side of it is that you did start, as you said, as a critic and a journalist. Um, And I wanted to bring that up anyway, because the other thing that you are, and maybe maybe you're not even aware of this, maybe I'm giving something away, but you are kind of renowned, notorious, I might even say, uh, amongst our peers for being the guy who does the most research. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm laughing at because I was, where was that sentence going? I was like, you're the guy who everybody hates. No one likes you. They, everybody says this. I don't know. No, you, like, I don't... you are the guy who reads more than anybody else on a subject before you start writing it, you know, um, amongst our peer group within comics. I mean, like we all do research and we're all prone to falling down that research rabbit hole as, you know, which we all know where you actually wind up. Well, this is the thing. Most people will say, oh, you need to do research, but you don't want to fall down the rabbit hole because then you do so much research that you're doing stuff that's unnecessary and just avoiding writing. Whereas you do do that amount of research, but then you still manage to turn around and do the writing as well. And is that, so linking it, the, the reason I link it to journalism is I'm wondering if that's got anything to do with your background as a critic and journalist where, you know, research is part of the job. Yeah. I, I think that's probably quite true. Uh, I remember actually, I did a book called Free uh, about the Spartan. The Spartans used to hunt their slaves, uh, the Helots. And I did a uh, story about the Spartan slave hunts. And the Helots, being a slave people, weren't, um, are not something that served well in the historical record. So you have to go to quite academic research. So I went down and really, that, that what well, I've often done a lot of research, but the, compared to Free, everything else is kind of second rate. Um, <laughs> and. One of the things, where, and of course that got me in contact with some academics, and one of the things that struck me, struck the academics is that, that I really did care about trying to get it right. Mm. And they, they were kind of like, so why? <laughs> and why do you care? A, yeah, exactly. It's, um, and for me, it was at least some attempt at the, the journalistic aspect to me. And that's kind of what I came back to, as in I would like to sort of present a world and understand it as best I can. Um, and there is part, you know, so that's definitely there. And I also found myself thinking about, this is Die, actually, part of the world building of Die. I read a lot for Die. And if it's, I know I've, I say I've read a lot of books and I look at them and think, did you re- actually read all of them cover to cover? And it's like, actually, a lot of them you did. But like, there's always other books you bought which you only read three chapters of because of the relevant ones or whatever. Mm. But with Die, there's a thing I got from like thinking about Tolkien. Like, Tolkien is like my founding, you know, pre teen influence. And he's somebody I spent a lot of my years angry with. As in, like, I love to, you know, you get, you're angry with somebody because you love them so much, you know, that they're kind of because you've grown and, you know, they remain who they were. And I used to, you know, like many people take the more cocky and epic poo position of uh, just, it's a kind of mockery of the kind of the various bits of socially problematic bits in Tolkien. You know, it's based upon all manner of stuff. But, you know, when I was searching Die, I had two things. One thing which was I got to see more as a human being. And therefore, I was able to forgive the problems of the work, realising as a, res- a response to Tolkien's life, yeah, I can go along with this. But the other thing I got is the reality of Middle-earth is interesting. Like, Middle-earth is kind of real in a way which few fantasy books are. 
especially like including some of the people who actually like will insult Tolkien. Like there's a weight to Middle Earth which is kind of weird. At least part of it comes from the fact it was so and not even over researched. It was languaged. You can argue mm. that Middle Earth is an excuse for Tolkien to do his fanfic languages. Well, there are scholars out there in Tolkienic languages, in you know the Black Speech and in mm. Elvish. There are literally academics who have written PhDs and stuff about this and who get hired for their knowledge of Tolkien's languages. Mm. I'm pretty sure you can't say that about any other fictional world. Exactly. I mean, there's such enormous and I, and what I think that it gives it a weight. And I found myself thinking, especially with Die, that, you know, uh, Middle Earth is a, is a fantasy world is created by a linguist. And I remember, I think it was, um, I think it was Robin D. Laws talking about um, who designed, the RPG designer who designed Glorantha. I forget his name. Uh, Greg Stafford. Oh, yeah. Greg Stafford, you know, that's a world designed by a theologian, basically, or somebody who's trained in religious, you know. Uh, and Die is a world designed by a critic. You know, Die is explicitly, I am taking 20 aspects that went into the RPG and explicitly dropping them onto a world. Um, turning the dynamic the Hegelian tension between them into the wars. It's literally deconstructivist. Yeah. Yes. As in, but I've turned that into fiction again. And you know, as in it's a critique, but now I've actually turned the critique back into fiction and now it's a living world and that. And in some ways the aim of die, and I don't think I've got it there yet, to be honest, but the aim of die eventually is to have that let be the research to give it weight. And I think you can expand that across almost most stuff I've done. As in I like the you are in hat you and you, I know more about it than you do, <laughs> and it's, it's, it's not you specifically. <laughs> no, but no, the no. Reader. But, well, you probably do though. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean. Like, as a, like, it doesn't apply to everything, and of it's often quite dangerous because a lot, of, especially to some of the, one of the worst things about writing is when somebody thinks they know something and they don't. It's like free is a good example. Free, we did the. I think it's more common now. People know it. But like we had several of you saying, uh, the fact these statues were painted for some flesh colours for some reason was took me out of the story. Oh, it's like yeah. no, you know what I mean. Yeah. So like, accuracy is actually distracting because in some ways, and that's definitely a problem I've hit occasionally. I don't, and some of it's just guilt. <laughs> I mean, I must like there's a there's part of me that would have loved to end up in academia. I think that that's that's more positive side. The other side of being in comics is like if I'm not, how much work do artists do? <laughs> so so if i'm not like you know and especially if i don't feel i am actually doing not even the same amount of work but like a comparable amount of work i somehow feel i'm just phoning it in right right but it's like i definitely do vary the amount of even it, it was the future was delivering me trying to write a light book um and even that i've done more research than i should have um <laughs> Can I also just point out that you, you quite blithely used the word Hegelian, and then you wonder <laughs> why people call you pretentious. It's the right word! <laughs> so, oh, I mean, dear. with all of this, okay, let, let, let's just quickly get into, uh, you know, literal process and method for a bit, because with all of this, how uh, detailed are your outlines? I assume you do outline before you start writing. The, the good answer is they vary. It's like occasionally it's um let's go like Wickdiv's a good example. Wickdiv, I at the start of Wickdiv I had two things. I, I knew the end. Uh I didn't know everything about the end, but I knew like the final image I was used and the final lines and the actual point we're heading towards. Uh I knew the rough length of it. I knew the cliffhanger for every uh arc. I knew what the arc would be characterized by. And there were ten arcs, was it? Or uh, eight? Nine. Nine, Nine. Uh, uh, like including the, the specials, right? Yeah, eight, uh, including a specials arc, which doesn't really count. So you essentially had a waypoint for each of those to go. This yes. is this is the big cliffhanger at the end of that story. Yeah, and I also know, and due to the nature of the cliffhanger, I know the the train. As I know, oh, this is like jungly, and this one's a deserty. You know, <laughs> so that's in some level at the start enough to hold it together. Uh, at the same time, the other thing I did in Wickdiv was I had the characters' arcs. As in the, the supporting characters, like Ball, or, I mean, like how Ball's fate is something I knew from the first issue. Mm. And you know what's happened to them, what their fatal flaw is, how that will delineate, and how that will end up for most of them, not all of them. So, in other words, I had their material for each of the gods. So, the process of actually writing was I did a fairly tight synopsis at the start of every arc. Um, uh, not an, always a one for one, but it's a kind of this is what's going to happen in each issue. And I basically took the material I had from the characters' arcs and the material I had from the structure of the issue, of the arc itself, 
sorry, the I can't use the same word for both. <laughs> you know, I, I, t- I took what I knew about the characters and what I knew would have to happen in that chat, that six issue chapter, um, and turned that into a singular entity. I don't often do a tight plotting for more than one arc ahead. That's interesting because I'm the same, actually. When I was doing Wasteland, I never did a tight plot of more than I, I waited until I came to, okay, now I'm going to write the next arc. And that's when I would do the detailed outline of it. And before then, mm. all I had, as you say, were kind of waypoints of, well, this is roughly what the arc is about, and here's where I want it to end. But that mm, was that's, that's exactly how I work. Um, yeah. But I didn't have those character arc details like you did. I mean, so even then, it's like there's, there's stuff. It's really stressing. Stuff changes so much. It's like where Lucifer ends up in Wicked is not where. And I, sort of, and I, I can sort of tell on some level. I did. I knew I would need to leave that open, and I would find the solution. In terms of like my Wicked plan, right? Deliberately leaving yourself a hole. Yeah, yeah, exactly that. In fact, the whole kind of I, I sort of viewed the final end of the year of Wickdiv in my original plan as solving the equation. <laughs> you know, there was a there will be at this point there will be things in motion, and you know some of these things. How will the other stuff become something satisfactory? Mm. And so, Lucifer, Cassandra, Baphomet, they're the they were three people who are pretty open. I never really knew. I you know I you know. I didn't know where the three of them were going to end up. And as they are probably in the last arc, the, the three, apart from Bowl, probably the three biggest beats, you know, and in terms mm. of, um, they're, they're all big, oh, very interesting. Because this is the thing is that people say, oh, do you, people get confused between the idea that you plan everything in advance <laughs> versus, you know, I know everything that's going to happen, but at the same time, everything is also built by going there. These things are all both true because this is something everyone else will also say. And that if you actually plan everything in advance, A, your brain don't work like that. And B, it'll be just typing. Well, the only way to the only way to literally plan everything in advance is to write the whole thing mm. out. And once you've done that, you know, what's the point in doing it again unless you're going to revise it? Exactly that. So here's a question then. Has that because that sounds like a method where you you have a certain amount of confidence in your ability to execute on the fly. Mm. is that different to how when you started out do you plan more or less than you know say you did 10 15 years ago i'm doing a face now <laughs> I do- great podcasting <laughs> yeah it's like imagine me just sucking my gums here at this point i'm not quite sure i think i do less generally speaking but more in recent past <laughs> as in, in terms of the last six months i kind of when my work dipped before, like, you know, when I got just down to uh, die and once in future and obviously a bit of ludicrous, I um, had some space. So I kind of ended up doing some quite big work. Like I, I researched a lot and did, you know, I broke down once in future's next arc, you know, so I, I did quite a lot of work on both those arcs to get them nailed down. Plus like I've written like one of the work for higher things. I've just handed in like a 10,000 word Bible, which is quite a big Good Bible. God, like, man. Like, yeah, for no reason. It's a work for hire gig. Why would anyone do that? I told you what, I did. So the problem, yeah, I'm trying to. I'm actually trying to do less work better. My basic plan at the moment, which is one reason why I've left more space to do more of the kind of world building, messing around stuff. Because this part of the weird thing about Die, I mean, that's the other thing I'm doing is that I was writing this whole RPG system off the side of Die, and like we just released the second manual of that. So that the whole thing is about hundred thousand words now in terms of what I've released for free. Mm-hmm. Why? Why would I do that? Why would it's a you novel. Do that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so that aspect to me um, ties into all you know. All this stuff sort of comes together, and like for me, this actually goes back to my previous talking about Tolkien. This part writing the RPG for Die was a device to allow me to think about Die some more. You know, as in like the whole world, how it could work, what sort of aspects. So, and the same way the Wick did, we had this either playlist. And my fifth, I end up by 500 songs. And I'd list it on shuffle, like a tarot deck. So in other words, these songs tying to different characters and moments in the story, arranged in different sequences, allow me to think about it in different angles. And just by listening to the podcast and walking around, I was working, or at least thinking about the larger meta structure of Wicked. So that, as that is to Wicked, the diopogy is to die. Um, and this leads back to a question about research. And I think the reason why I do so much research isn't just because I plan to use it all, you know? It's basically an excuse to think about the topic, you know, as in like if I'm researching like Arthur and reading Arthurian stuff, I'm thinking about Arthur generally and, so, and 
you know, Arthur generally and also Arthur specifically as in my story. Um, I think, I think that, I think those things all sort of tie together. So yeah, these are all methods to make yourself examine the issue from different angles. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's definitely like, that's, that's definitely it. I think. Yeah. So then do you, while you're doing this and while you're reading your, you know, pages and pages of tomes of research, are you taking notes all the time? Are you scribbling in the margins or do you just let it all kind of stew in your head or what? I I do scribble in the margins. That's the kind of the, um, I take the worst, if you find, uh, if you find my books, they're normally, they're marked all over. The stuff I actually read for fiction, if I'm reading in a Kindle in an electronic form, it's normally stuff I'm reading for pleasure. Or occasionally it's fiction. Oh, because you can't scribble in the margins. Yeah, 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 exactly. As in, there's some stuff I read for research in Kindle, but it's rarely stuff I'm going to read for deep research. By which I mean, like something like Playing at the World, which is this amazing history of the RPG, had to be in physical, which is hard because it's about the size of your torso. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) It's amazing. It's it's like five books tied together. Uh, But um, that needed to be because I need to. I need to doodle. There's other stuff which is okay. This is lighter. I, I, good example. I was reading Stevenson's uh, Jekyll and Hyde, and that's something like, okay. I can read that on Kindle. Yes, this is relevant to RPGs, and it's relevant for like Stevenson was like an early war gamer. He exchanged, um, he actually exchanged gaming write-ups of H.G. Wells. Like they used to write their um, games huh. back and forth to each other. You know, talk about two father of the modern romance, father of modern sci-fi massive nerds both both weird gamers <laughs> you know literally i mean steve this wonderful image of steve i'm not sure this is going to go into die but stevenson played war games with his nephew up in his the attic room he was in and like, anytime anyone came in he was so embarrassed oh wow <laughs> so you imagine like stevenson was hiding his stuff as opposed to hg wells who appeared not to care right hg like, wells is absolutely i'm doing this i'm gonna write a book i'm gonna publish a book about it it's gonna be great right um, but, but when you're reading jekyll and hyde you're reading it to get that's more so. Um, this is what the, what I'm taking from this anyway. That that's more about absorbing flavor and feel and atmosphere, and not mm. literally going like, "Oh, look at this sentence here," and underlining yeah. and highlighting things in that way. Whereas when you're reading nonfiction for research, you are more about, "Oh, this is a really interesting bit that I should get in somewhere." Definitely that. I mean, occasionally you do get something I do need, like there are, especially with Dime, occasionally scribbling that, but. If you're reading a fiction book, you probably maybe take one. Okay, I've hit the quote I need to use. If it's just one quote, I can write that down. Mm. I mean, it's much more interesting about the feeling and the idea of, okay, what did this mean in the time it's coming and what's actually your take on it? But occasionally you do get like a fiction book, which is so relevant to what I'm doing that you do get in paper. But yeah, there's, there is that kind of, I mean, you can make notes on a Kindle, but it's so slow. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not, yeah. yeah, it's not the best system. So, Okay. So walk us through, like, you've done your research, you've done your outline, you sit down and you write your script. Um, what's a typical, just quickly, what's a typical writing day like for you? I should quickly dive in. The amount of research I do is limited, is will expand indefinitely until I need to write it. <laughs> it's like, it is that kind of... Um, oh, you're one of these people that you keep researching while you're still writing. Yeah, yeah, that as well. But also the fact that the thing that will make me stop researching or stop it because I'm not researching hardcore the whole time. Ideally, like the Wicked specials, you take about six months to research them or a year in one case. Uh, but it's also, that's alongside all the other reading, you know, it's coming up, you know, in about a year's time, I'm going to have to write a Bronte issue of die and you know, okay, I'll start reading some Bronte stuff. And you know, it all sort of works in around the edges and it only really stops when Stephanie needs a script. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, that, that's the reality of the, my approach to research. Because when I'm researching something, it's not because I care about the topic, you know? It's not like I do comics about stuff I don't like. <laughs> so it's something I'm like, ooh, tell me more about, I don't know, uh, Paris, Parisian tunnels or whatever. Um, to go to the question, my standard, I have a standard day, and the reason why I have a standard day is I know when I'm breaking it. Mm. <laughs> no, I, I'm, I'm the same. I have my ideal day, and I hit it more often than you might think, but not every day by any means. At the moment, is I go to the gym three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Friday often breaks. If not, I'll do a run at the weekend. Uh, after doing the stuff in the morning, after that initial stuff, I will try not to do any email before. This rarely happens. I normally do something. I will get my pages. I try to write at least five pages per day before lunch. 
that's you know if I write more great if I you know write less it's not the end of the world occasionally that's swapped in for other forms of creative work mm-hmm. for example like writing a new synopsis might go in the morning occasionally especially like before Christmas but that kind of okay and that's basically 25 pages a week even on a bad week a script a week that's kind of the the basic intellectual structure of issues. The afternoon is used to everything else, uh, which includes um, uh, answering emails, probably some synopsis writing, notes to uh, editors. Also, and this is the bit where I think I'm a bit different to most writers, polishing this the drafts I've written in the morning. Oh, on the same day? No, not on the same day. As in, I will take whatever draft needs to be done and polishing it. So in other words, it, like, it's normally when I finish the entire script, I'll go back and polish it all. And my polishing is often quite heavy. Like my my first draft script can be, you talked about having a like a draft zero. Mm. I wouldn't say my I wouldn't say my what I count as like that page will do for the morning is a draft zero state, but occasionally it's not far away. And especially because the more nowadays, since I'm using Scrivener to write most of my scripts, I'm kind of like like a three D printer. Like I'm writing. I'm bouncing around the issue a lot. Oh, you're like me. You write in layers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, exactly. So I'm aware, like, like that. And that's especially when I've got the, if I've got the very basic structure of the whole issue down, Scrivener is like flex enough to move stuff around. Very, mm. you know, I move stuff around so much more now than I used to. Um, and then when I actually polish it, it's a case of like, I can actually, even though, it, even if a script may not be written, I can now see the script and now it's me filling a lot more in. So, like, what I think, in terms of word count, I suspect most of my writing is done in, quote-unquote, one of those afternoons when I'm polishing. But the actual real work is all done at the the much rougher stage. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. I, I'm the same, yeah. I need to know the outline, even if it is just a, a rough skeleton, before I can then look at it and go, okay, does this shape actually work, or do I need to move mm. things around? And before then, for me anyway, there's no point in doing the detailed writing because it may all change. If I move things around, then that detailed writing could well be completely useless. Exactly. I might end up deleting everything. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> Which nobody enjoys doing. Like, why would I do that? Um, and of course, the other thing is, like, you've got to do at least five, you know, five pages a day abstractly. Like, and occasionally those pages just are written to be edited. Like, I know this isn't right, but it, but it keeps the room. You know, it's same like if you're trying to build a chair, I, I haven't got time to make a leg. Uh, I'm going to put some books beneath this chair at this point. <laughs> these books will be replaced by these books will be replaced by a chair leg at some point. I know, but I know roughly what we need to do, and it's something like this. Um, so there's a lot of that. I was going to ask you about that phase because on your creator own books, your wife is often your editor. Poor Chrissy. Uh, yeah, <laughs> the long suffering. Um, but no, and she's and she's very good, but. Uh, does she also read stuff where, you know, is she your first reader even on stuff where she's not your editor? She is my, uh, no. <laughs> no. She's only my first reader on my stuff, which uh, she's editing. In fact, she's often doesn't read, she doesn't read all the stuff I write. You have to pay, I have to pay her to read my stuff in a very, in a very real understanding. <laughs> sounds like I'm joking, but you know, she reads, you know, I write a lot, you know, I do a lot and I put out a lot of books. So it's kind of like, even like, certain other books it takes other whiles to get because she's also a writer so you know she has her own right, she's got her own through. stuff to do yeah 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 yeah, yeah. you know like she she's also she's not quite she's not researching in the same way i am but she still does work as a as a poetry critic and like so there's always like a lot of stuff for her to go on there in terms of but in terms of the work which she edits though yeah she's my first reader uh but when the script goes over to her it's normally pretty good like it's not like she sees early scripts oh okay so you don't you don't give a rough draft you do at least make it you know, some semblance of finished before it get reaches that stage. Yeah, yeah. It's basically if you get I mean like it's not quite there's probably actually maybe there's been some times on some books where it's been a bit it's gone over a bit scrappier than I normally would. But I don't do that anymore. Especially because I think all the books we do with her now are kind of quite intense and serious. And in other words I want to present her in a state which I think is mostly right. Mm. And then the process is well Chubba goes through and like comments, edits and stuff. And occasionally, you know, get and we get into a state which can go over to the artist. Coffee shares comments about stuff that needs more or less. But in terms of like really the 
the funny is the biggest heaviest rewriting is actually done at the lettering stage well i mean that's the same for a lot of people a lot of comics writers that's the the kind of a dirty secret that a lot of people that people who don't know the comics world don't understand is how much you can change even after it's been drawn just by changing the dialogue around i have so one of the lines i use is a uh, comics all dubbed <laughs> you know <laughs> you know all comics are dubbed we put dialogue over the top and it can be anything uh, but in the case of like partially that's of course just for smoothness as you know it's like what we do is um okay is this transition working what can we do to help or this panel is perfect we don't need any dialogue you know those kind yeah, of tr- yeah, yeah which are theirs kind of which is cross stuff i handle quite well by myself the stuff which like i do with chrissy is very much much more okay do we need almost word it's like you sort of tell chrissy's got a background in poetry and that this is tight reading this is kind of like okay this is what we're trying to do in this panel this is my intent uh what word don't we need or what word do we need mm. uh especially like with wikdiv at certain points when especially in the final year of wikdiv where we're trying to unveil all the secrets like every single word matters and every single word needs to like be linked to something 20 issues ago or whatever. <laughs> and this was done after it had been drawn. Uh, some of it. Yes. Right. I mean, like a lot of it was, but in terms of like the core of it was done, but other stuff was like arguing over very specific bits. It's more like, um, especially cause there's always deadline pressing. So it's like, we've got to get something to Jamie or like Stephanie or whoever. Um, like we know this works and the stuff which doesn't work in lettering we can fix is the best way in yeah. terms of, yeah, we think it's, you know, if, was, if we published it, it would also be fine, but it wouldn't be as precise in a way which a precise execution of what we desired, I guess. So it's like, that's yeah. kind of the, it's really, I mean, it's really intense when it's actually pro- properly intense. It's, it's really an interesting sitting down and arguing going to, in, over individual lines. Um, it's not something I've ever done with any other editor. Oh, so you don't do that with regular work for higher editors? No, no. Like, um, it's funny. I think it's because I don't think Chrissy realised that the amount of arguing or changing was actually unusual because she she comes from a book background. Mm. Uh, so that kind of relationship's been like really interesting for me. Like, but like regular work. For, so my my dirty secrets. I swear the reason why I, I got on quite well with Marvel or like various work for higher people is I'm basically a kind of a sweetheart. In that, you know, I don't miss deadlines. I um. I, I, I generally know when the deadlines are coming up and get so almost every single book I worked on at Marvel, they stopped giving me deadlines for because they, you know, knew that I would know when the artist needed it and stuff like that. I think that comes from, because you and I, what people may not know is that you and I both used to work for the same magazine publisher many, many years ago. And I've got mm. that exact, I've always had exactly that. And I'm sure yeah. that it comes from being in magazines is like, I am the guy who will proactively email editors and say, when do you need this by? I just want to make sure I'm giving myself enough time and editors fall on their knees and praise me to the heavens. And I'm like, <laughs> this is just, I'm a professional. What do you expect? Um, but apparently this is not normal. Yeah. I mean, stuff like that, I've got, I have weaknesses. I mean, I definitely need a good editor by which I mean, even about, cause my spelling is a mess. Like, and I don't notice, like I just, there are things I just don't notice. Like, um, in a way which my, you know, there's dyslexia in the family. I don't think it is dyslexia. I think it's something else, but there's, there's some things I just don't do. Right. <laughs> so you need a good copy editor. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely need a good copy editor, but otherwise it's, um, yeah, I'm self, it completely comes from the, the magazine times in terms of awareness of the actual, how books are made, uh, is really useful, especially in comics where you, you are as a writer, you have more responsibility is the wrong word. But like no, but I know what you're reaching for. You have more influence over and a little more autonomy, really, over what the whole final package looks like and how it's put together yeah, than yeah, yeah. just about any other medium. It's true. Yeah, must have, this is one of the things I've been chewing over recently because it was you know the whole di- who is the director in comics argument, which is such a useless oh, argument. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I've, my, I, maybe, you know, maybe the artist, you know, maybe the artist is the director, but you know, uh, I think the writer's the showrunner. I mean, there's like, there's like all metaphors are by definition lies, <laughs> you know, and uh, like, especially in stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, but it's interesting, like the, the showrunnerness of a writer is an interesting thing to think about. Well, I think that's more apparent on, ironically, on books where you have less control on work for higher books. Because you're generally, if you're writing a book in, you know, a, a Marvel comic book or even a DC book, you're generally writing in a much more shared universe than in one of your own original creations. 
And that's where I think the showrunner parallel works because you are juggling things that aren't within your aren't necessarily within your control, but you have to make them fit within the work mm. you're making. Yeah. I'm sorry, this is a new idea, so I haven't quite chewed it over that much, but there's something appealing to be playing with it in that way. Mm. Yeah. All right, so let's start to bring this to a close. I'm going to give you the, uh, the the standard finishing questions, or some of them anyway. So what do you enjoy, considering what we've just talked about, all the research you do and the kind of the depth of the revision in your drafts, what part of writing do you enjoy the most? What do you, you know, when you sit down at your desk, do you go, oh boy, I've got to do a, I don't know, write an action scene or write one of those fake magazine articles or do a plot <laughs> or something. You know, what, what's the part that you really, or even just types of scene or characters, what do you really enjoy doing? It's tricky because um, one of my standard lines is like, anyone can, write, anyone can write when they're inspired. It's a job because I have to write when I'm not. So like when I think about the job, it's a lot more like me finding ways to make myself care and engage. And that can be quite hard for the, the way my head works. Mm. Um, but the two things which I find universally delightful, uh, well, one is finishing a script. There's nothing I quite like than seeing the, you know, so especially the way I, the 3D printer model, in terms of this was literally just a pile of like random words like, four days ago. <laughs> and now this looks like a script. If I gave this to somebody, art will appear. And like the, the, the satisfaction of the completion of the thing and seeing this kind of thing you've made. Um, as, as a side effect of that, anytime you get art, is is the addictive thing in comics. That's the uh, most art forms like prose. You you are you never get to be the audience of prose. You know, you ne- whilst in comics or like other like visual mediums, I've written a script. It's, it is now it's come back. It's a simultaneously mine and not mine, and that's a really interesting thrill. Mm. Um, but the actual moment, which is the closest you ever get to being God, is just when it's working. There's nothing like I find better than writing something and knowing it's good. And that's such a rare thing. To, I mean, that not just competent or entertaining or whatever. So no, oh no, this is fire. This is absolutely fire, and you are creating a world on the page. And everything is everything is absolutely in the moment of flow to go game design for a second. Uh, that's the bit, and it's normally um, it's just a big emotional dramatic scene. In t- one of the things I regularly say to people because my books have a tendency to make people cry, or like you know, people say that anyway. Uh, and when they come to my table, what I almost always say to them is like. Um, the first person to cry. Don't worry. The first person to cry over this stuff was me. Like I'm, you know, when I'm emotionally engaged in something, I know it to that. That is it. Mm. And I guess the other small thing is just the idea. I mean, the idea is the easiest thing. But when you're just having like the novum of joy of oh wait this, uh, and you can't, you know, it came from nowhere. It's just putting one thing together or another. That's just like a giggle, and you know, you, you immediately think, okay, that is a quote unquote good idea, and now I can only mess it up. <laughs> Right. Okay. So, I mean, there's, there may be an obvious contrasting answer then uh, on the flip side, which is what what do you dread coming to write? Where, you know, which part of the process do you really wish you didn't have to do, even though you know you have to? I'm really bad at reading notes. Like, I'm really, ang- uh, I, I think I'm slightly better now. And it might just because I, I, I actually do less work for higher books. But like when I got like a note back from a, a pitch or like a script or whatever with editorial notes, I could have I could procrastinate like a clear half day at least before I read the email. Mm, yeah, like yeah. the idea of like pressing that thing, and that's kind of like it's so funny because I'm not somebody who gets bad notes often. Like I'm quite you're you know as in I I appear to be quite good at aligning to the limitations of a job, as in I know what you know I can normally work out what they're asking for, and if not, I also take notes really well. Like I don't. I'm not. I'm weirdly non-precious precious for a pretentious person. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can totally relate to that. I'm. I, I'm kind of the same. I dread getting notes. Uh, for yeah, as you say, ironically, for work for hire stuff, for things where I don't have control. I think that's the issue. If it's something where I have the creative control and the final say, I actually don't mind getting notes because I know mm. that I am completely free to say, actually, no, we're going to do it my way. If I think that's right, and, you know, and I will, like you, I will happily take notes and I will make changes. You know, I'm quite, I think I'm fairly good at reading a note and going, actually, yeah, that's a better idea. I'll do it that way. But at the same time, if I get one and I think, no, 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 that's absolutely not going to work. If I have the power to do that and to say, to reject it in that way, I'm much more comfortable about taking the notes as a whole. Whereas, yeah, a commission job, a work for hire thing where I'm not 
the final creative arbiter, those I hate because then I know mm. inevitably I'm going to be made to do something that I think will <laughs> make the work suffer, you know. And that's terribly egotistical of me, but it is the reality. I think, I mean, the worst thing is just like when the job changes. I mean, like, I, when I'm doing oh, work for well. hires, like I can deal with really, <laughs> really bad situations as long as I know what it is. And if I sign up for a job and I know what it is, I'm normally fine. When a job's, the reality of a job changes when I'm doing it, uh, that is uh, horrible. It's, and it's because it puts you in awful situations. It's, it's always, is this worth quitting over? <laughs> you know, and that's the only, uh, you know, because there's a limit to what you can even do there. Uh, and normally the answer is no for me in terms of no, let's get off, let's finish and get out of here as quickly as possible. Um, but that's not much fun. And occasionally it's just like, just the hard days when I've got, when the words just aren't coming, you know. Yeah, the pulling teeth days. Well, we all have those, don't we? Yeah. All right. So what is, going back to positives again, what is something that you have read or watched recently where the writing really impressed you and why? I'm most finished because it's just I've finally talked Chris into watching it. So I watched all of Glow. Like Glow has been like guilty pleasure is the wrong word, but I've been really Glow is interesting as how it's delineating female friendships in an interesting situation. Include and uses the period detail well. There's definitely some there's some stuff I can imagine like Zenial uh, kids thinking, oh my god, that's not even Zenial kids like generate millennial kids thinking, my god, my mum did had to go through this in the eighties. Mm. Um, and just how it does a very large group cast very well while still keeping to this interesting like half hour thing. You know, that's, that's interesting. It's really like, there's something light and delightful to it at the same time as being quite emotionally heavy. Like um, that was, I thought season two was really excellent. Season three props dropped off a bit, but like that's the thing that comes immediately to mind. Kieran, where can people find you online? They can find me online. Uh, when, basically Kieran Gillen on anything. I'm on Instagram at Kieran Gillen. I'm on Twitter on Kieran Gillen. Uh, I've got uh, my main website is on Tumblr, which is also Kieran Gillen at Tumblr. But the best way to keep contact with me, I have a Substack newsletter, uh, kierangillen.substack.com, and that's basically semi-weekly downloads of my nonsense. Kieran, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. This has been delightful. And thank you all out there for listening to Writing and Breathing. If you enjoyed the show, why not become a Patreon supporter? Patrons get exclusive access to episodes a week before they're published. So go to patreon.com slash writingandbreathing to make your pledge. If you want to get in touch, go to writingandbreathing.com for links to email and Twitter. And that's also where you'll find all the previous episodes. Writing and Breathing is a 7RQ production and is made in England. Remember to write. Remember to breathe. I'll see you next time.